So I guess the way you start a lecture like this in Los Angeles is you make a joke about the traffic. So thank you, Dara. <laughs> Uh, first of all, I want to join with my colleagues at the Institute in thanking you, the Los Angeles Jewish community, for so warmly welcoming the Hartman Institute uh, into the fabric and to the texture of this community. It gives us incredible joy that 16 congregations came together, frankly, to do anything, but 16 congregations um, coming together uh, to actually study the central challenges facing Jewish life and to say that we as a community are held together uh, not oftentimes by the ability to pray together, but we certainly can be held together by the willingness to participate in a serious conversation together, to study together, and to imagine together our future. So we feel very grateful, and I want to thank all of the rabbis who are here and the communities for participating in this project creatively. Uh, especially want to thank today Rabbi Geller for uh, opening up Temple Emmanuel to us, and thank you Rabbi Firmer for your introduction. I want to struggle with you today about uh, an issue, a challenge that uh, I know that many of you think about and I think about as well, and it has been on the minds and on the landscape of the organized Jewish community for quite some time, which is the growing, call it instability or anxiety, about the nature of and the future of the relationship between diaspora Jews and Israel. Right, whether you agree with uh, the studies that have come out in recent years about the growing distancing phenomenon of younger Jews from Israel, whether you yourself personally struggle with uh, the relationship with the state of Israel, whether this isu these issues are born out of shifts in policy, history, um, ethnicity, or the changing face of the Jewish people both in America and Israel, Many people have observed that as the state of Israel enters its fourth decade, as the Jewish people in America have gone through massive transformations, that this relationship between Jews in diaspora and Jews in Israel seems perhaps less, less self-evident, less obvious than it once did. And the nature of that relationship and the question that I'm posing tonight, what do Jews in America and Israel owe one another, the answers to those questions seem less self-evident today than they once did. The cause of this we could take from either a negative perspective or a positive perspective. Since we're Jews, let's start with the negative. <laughs> the, negative uh, the negative approach to this um, comes from a realization or an awareness that whereas once upon a time in American Jewish history there was perhaps no single more unifying force for the Jewish people in America than the state of Israel. The reality is actually opposite today, which is no single force is more polarizing or destabilizing to American Jewish unity than the state of Israel. That's not a value statement about the state of Israel as much as it's a descriptive reality. Nothing is quite as divisive in terms of Jewish communal discourse than the state of Israel itself. And so when we try to imagine what the future or the nature of the relationship between these communities are, we first look at the ways in which these communities are being torn apart. If once upon a time in the American Jewish community we talked about not wanting to air our dirty laundry in public, right, and so therefore issues or debates of policy when it comes to Israel and communal policy about Israel were meant to be subject for an internal conversation, but externally we had to model a shared discourse. Ladies and gentlemen, the American public square right now is the Jewish people's laundromat. It is no longer obvious that we do our dirty laundry internally, when now, instead of debating issues of Israeli security and policy in the Jewish Week or in the Jewish Journal, it's the subject of fodder of the New York Times. That's also a Jewish newspaper. I have to think of a non-Jewish newspaper to play that out. We have, um, 
models or examples of the way in which these conflicts of loyalty are playing out in public or perhaps disloyalty, the conflict and tension that's emerged in recent years about how even an American Jew is meant to express their loyalty or support for the State of Israel has resulted in dramatic and dynamic conflict, call it APAC J Street, right, where it's no longer obvious to the average American Jew, not just how even if I feel a sense of relationship to the state of Israel, I'm supposed to express that loyalty, but the boundaries of loyalty and public participation around these issues are shifting quite dramatically. We saw this especially during the recent Gaza war, where if once upon a time, even two, three years ago, the boundaries of political discourse in the Jewish community went from APAC to J Street, in the Gaza war, the Jewish organization, Jewish Voice for Peace, a pro-boycott divestment sanction organization, saw a dramatic spike in their web traffic that exceeded that of APAC or J Street. So if you thought that even, even when it felt tense between APAC and J Street, the possibility for widespread dissent around issues of Israel for the American Jewish community seems to have expanded its boundaries in the last couple of years even, uh, even more dramatically. And perhaps the best indicator of the growing kind of negative cause is it's no longer clear to our Jewish community more generally, and I think everyone is aware of this, how a community would even express a notion of consensus if it had one. So not only do we see a diminishment or a demise in terms of a culture of consensus, but we've also lost the institutional frameworks to express that consensus. And so again, I come back to the question that we're going to wrestle with today. What do Jews and Israel, uh, in Israel and America owe one another has moved from being what you might call an intuitive sensibility of a previous generation to now an unstable conversation. But let's take the positive view on where, what, why and where this comes about. Part of the reason for why American Jews and Israeli Jews are at a new juncture, at a new place in this, um, in this fraught relationship is precisely because they are actually playing out dramatic success stories of unprecedented quality in the entirety of Jewish history. Never before in Jewish history has there been a success story like the success of the American Jewish diaspora, and never before in Jewish history has there been a success under sovereignty like the State of Israel. In other words, the problems that are created of an instability of a relationship between Jews in one place and another place may be identifiable because of some of the negative causes that I indicated before, but are also surfacing because we're living in unprecedented times with the gifts of sovereignty in one place and freedom in another. We are playing out a vision of Jewish possibility in diaspora that no longer needs Israel quite the same way. We as American Jews, and I think this is important, I want you to hold on to it. We as American Jews must come to terms with the fact that we are living in what we must start calling a voluntary diaspora. We don't tend to think in these terms because most of Jewish history, diaspora was an involuntary category. It was a Greek way of saying exile. Exile signals that you want to live in another place, but external circumstances are forcing you to live where you are. But if only your dreams could come true, you would go back to the place where you wanted to go. American Jews, if you want to move to Israel, you can move to Israel. All it costs is the cost of a plane ticket, and depending on your Jewish status, they will give you citizenship at the airport. This is no longer a situation of diaspora against our will. It is diaspora by design. 
No Jewish community throughout the world has chosen diaspora more explicitly than the American Jewish community. American Jews have the lowest rates of Aliyah of any other diaspora community in the world. Other diaspora Jewish communities still live in that exiled diaspora tension. We American Jews and our success are the product of our own creation. And so it's not surprising that while in the early years of the American Jewish community experiencing the rise of Zionism, American Jews saw the responsibility to help and support that project over there and its urgency and necessity of getting off the ground. Especially in the post-war trauma, the post-Shoah necessity for Jewish sovereignty seemed quite obvious. But you fast forward 40, 50 years later, and we American Jews have chosen to live in America, have chosen to carve out our destiny here, and the picture of what Jewishness means has become something radically different as part of the success story in America than what Jewish life looks like in Israel. And the same goes for Israelis vis-a-vis -vis North Americans. The success story of the state of Israel, which we don't talk about enough because we get urgently anxious about its survival, but the success story of the state of Israel is a thriving of the Jewish people under sovereignty in a way that we really have never seen. In grand total, the Jews have lived under sovereignty for about roughly 200 years of our existence. You had the Davidic kings, that peters out quickly when they start fighting against each other. You have the Hasmoneans and the Maccabees, that peters out rather quickly when one side of the family decides that they'd rather be aligned with the Roman Empire than with their sibling. And then you have the 66 years from 1948 to the present. So this un, un, oh, virtually unprecedented experiment in Jewish power and Jewish sovereignty is also producing a self-conscious and proud Jewish identity of Israelis that renders unstable the notion of a dependency with an American or a diaspora community far away. So I gave you the negative, but the positive is also something we have to be conscious of and have to embrace. The moment that we're living in is the success story of the thriving of two Jewish communities who no longer let's be honest, really need each other. We could debate that in the Q&A. <laughs> but in that, that version of the success story says, since this community has thrived in a particular way and is shaping its destiny and understands its vision as being one set of circumstances and one set of ideas, and that community is also thriving and living out its vision of what Jewish life should be, quite obviously, it becomes harder to answer the question intuitively of what diaspora Jews and Israel owe one another. So whether we take this from a negative perspective or whether we take it from a positive perspective, I think it's a critical moment in Jewish history to start asking this question and to start formulating some language, and that's what I hope we can do today. Start formulating some language of what do we think this relationship is supposed to be? What's its, what are the theoretical models from our tradition or from our moral imagination about what the relationship between diaspora Jews and Israel is supposed to be? And I think, and this is the simple idea I'm going to try to argue today, I think the best we're going to be able to come up with is some sort of pluralism of peoplehood. Part of the conflicts that have um, actually been deeply destructive in this community and elsewhere, when Jews attack other Jews or rabbis attack other rabbis in public for insufficient loyalty to the state of Israel or for expressions of loyalty to the state of Israel that don't stand up to their own standards, all of that stems from really different conceptual understandings of what the nature of that relationship is supposed to be. And if you misunderstand, if you understand the relationship to Israel to be in one thing, and someone else understands the relationship to Israel to be something else, it's almost impossible for those two things to correspond and to communicate. 
And what I want to try to suggest today, and we're going to do some learning together with these texts, is five conceptual models, five theoretical models, all sourced from within our tradition about the nature of the Israel diaspora relationship. What you will find, perhaps with some frustration, is that they are really different from each other. All of them are born out of authentic historical circumstances, and all of them, I think, capture some aspect of the truth of the nature of this relationship. I want to learn them together with you, and then I want to ask, at the end of tonight's lecture and with today's conversation, what does it mean to actually try to hold on to all five simultaneously? Could a community that is struggling with a problem maintain a kind of pluralism of ideas with respect to these conceptual models? And I do want to ask you one more thing as you read through with me today. I want you to listen for which of these models resonates most with you. You know, none of them have to be perfect, but I want you to try to ask as we're learning through these, which of them speaks to you? And I'll come back to that a little bit later on. The first model I want to look at, if you don't have, everyone have a source sheet? Yeah. If not, I think there are more out there. The first model I want to look at of the nature of the relationship between diaspora Jews and Jews in Israel is from a little bit of a surprising place. It's from um, a kind of obscure place in the book of Genesis, which is after the drama of Genesis 12. Everybody reads Genesis 12. Fewer people read Genesis 13. Genesis 12 is when God says to Abraham, go to the land that I will show you. Surprisingly, Abraham listens to God and goes to where he's supposed to go. And actually, in theory, the Bible could end at the beginning of Genesis 12. God said to an Israelite, go there. He went there. The end, right? And then, you know, drama ensues. Part of that drama is that it, the land turns out to be uninhabitable. And so Abraham leaves and goes to Egypt. And so Genesis 13 is when he's coming back to the land of Israel. And something interesting happens upon his return to the land of Israel, which is captured in Genesis chapter 13. Um, Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him, to the Negev. And Abraham was very rich in cattle and silver and gold. And he went on his journeys from this place to that place and go on to verse 5. And Lot also, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land was not able to bear them, that they might live together, for their possessions were great, so that they could not live together. Kind of an interesting problem has begun to ensue here, which is that both Abraham and Lot have actually become so wealthy, right, that they are incapable of actually living in the same place, because the land, this is the first time I think it's recorded in human history, the land ain't big enough for the two of them. So this creates a bit of a problem because after all, Abraham has been designated by God to go to the promised land and to take his family members with them. And it turns out that the promised land is incapable of holding all of his family. Now, one might look at this and say, fix the problem, right? Merge the flocks and the herds of the cattle, right? Is wealth really gonna stand in the way of peoplehood? Right? We know it does, but in this moment, we get a test case of shouldn't wealth be a gift rather than a problem? But the text goes on. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's cattle and the herdsmen of Lot's cattle, and the Canaanite and the Prizite lived then in a land. We get this little weird distraction at the end of the verse to tell us about the Canaanites and Prizites. Why? Because I want to get an indicator that don't worry, they're not that greedy. There are other people also living in this land. So that indicates that they're actually boxed into a particular area of the land, and therefore this is creating a point of conflict between Abraham's people and Lot's people. And now they're at a critical juncture for the theory of family and peoplehood. 
What are they going to do if they can't actually live in the same space? And Abraham, Abraham comes up with a novel yet somewhat surprising suggestion. Abraham said to Lot, let there be no strife, I beg you, between me and you, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. So first thing he says is, because we're family, we shouldn't fight with each other. That didn't have to be an inevitable read. <laughs> right? The answer could have been, we're family, so we shouldn't fight, but fighting is part of what it means to live together as family, so let's figure out a way to live together. But what Abraham will ultimately choose is, in order to retain our sense of family and identity, it's better that we actually not live in the same place. Right? In order to be family, it's better that I live here and you live there, and that way everyone will all get along. We'll get together for Thanksgiving. Right? There's a message here about peoplehood which is really important, which is an idea of peoplehood which says in order to sustain the notion of family and people, you actually shouldn't live in the same place. And Abraham says to Lot, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself, I beg you, from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. Lot lifts up his eyes. He sees that there's a better option than the land of Israel, which is the well-watered plain of the Jordan. It gives you the parentheses. This is before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a good place to live except for the neighbors, right? Um, and he tells them, he says, you choose. Now, something radical actually happening here because, remember, God has told Abraham, go to this particular place. And Abraham, in this moment, gambles. He says to Lot, you choose. Do you want to stay here or do you want to go over there? How can Abraham do that? Shouldn't he have said, God told me to be in this particular place, so since we want to live separate from one another, I'll stay here and you go over there. And by the way, Lot, that's actually a better place to live because it actually has water for your flocks. It seems that the text is suggesting that Abraham is prioritizing peoplehood over land, family over land. Resolve the conflict with your own people, even at the risk of jeopardizing what God has promised you as the promised land. But the larger premise, the larger issue, and the model that's being suggested here is that the way you preserve family, the way you preserve a sense of peoplehood, is that some of you should live over here and some of you should live over there. Don't get too caught up in this being a problem. The Jewish people are not meant to live in one place, and it's actually better for peoplehood that the Jewish people are divided neatly, relatively, between America, roughly 40 to 45 percent of the world's Jewish population, the state of Israel, roughly 40 to 45 percent of the world's Jewish population, and the rest scattered elsewhere. That this is actually, from the perspective of Genesis 13, an ideal model for sustaining or maintaining a sense of family relationship and peoplehood. And this is ultimately what happens. Lot goes in one direction, Abraham stays here. And remember, this is not, we shouldn't be family anymore but precisely to avoid the conflict that's inevitable by family living in the same place, it's better for family to divide. The first model I want to put on the table suggests that it's better for the Jewish people to think of two separate destinies. We retain some relationship of family and peoplehood. We retain some loyalty between the two, but the ultimate vision is you live over there and I live over here. And that helps us to actually be family because then we're not really in each other's business. We leave each other alone. Maybe we visit each other once in a while. Maybe we make pilgrimage. We send gifts back and forth. But we ultimately allow for the independent pursuit of two different destinies. 
This gets played out in, um, in contemporary Israeli Jewish history in the second source, which I take from a book by a colleague, Noam Pianko, on Zionism and the Roads Not Taken. But there's a great exchange of letters that takes place between David Ben-Gurion and Jacob Blaustein in 1950. At the time, the American Jewish community was actually governmentally led by the American Jewish Committee. Because right, American Jews had not fully penetrated into the establishment of being Americans and needed to be represented politically by their own sub-institution. In the early 1950s, when the Prime Minister of Israel wanted to speak to the President of the United States, he did so via Jacob Blaustein. In 2014, if and when the Prime Minister of Israel wants to speak to the President of the United States, he calls directly. Right? So, but in the, from the perspective of 1950s Judaism, the Jewish people are essentially led by two different entities. One, the prime minister leading the efforts of the nascent state of Israel, and the American Jewish committee led by individuals like Jacob Blaustein. Ben-Gurion did something quite radical in 1950, which is after the creation of the state of Israel, comes along and announces that the next key moment to enable the thriving and success of the Israel story has to be aliyah by the American Jewish community. They're the big albatross. I gotta move them over here, and that will make this place really thrive. Blaustein does something that I think would be almost unheard of by an American Jewish leader today, which is he stands up to the prime minister and says, no, you don't. Blaustein says in response to Ben-Gurion, you work on your project, and don't you try to poach my people. And the legacy, actually, of this moment from Blaustein is, as I alluded to before, the American Jewish community ultimately makes aliyah far less than any other, any other Jewish community, and ultimately, true to what Blaustein was trying to do, pursues its destiny in America as opposed to in Israel. Noam writes about this nicely, where he says, in 1950, two Israeli and American Jewish leaders, Ben-Gurion and David Blaustein, even made an agreement to disagree on the meaning of Judaism and Zionism. Ben-Gurion promised to mitigate his rhetoric of aliyah and negation of the exile in exchange for the support of the American Jewish community. Parentheses, he did so publicly. <laughs> he never changed his attitudes privately. But publicly, he stopped pro proclaiming the urgency and necessity of American Jews to make aliyah. Given the historical circumstances, the decision to suppress prickly differences made sense at the time. After decades of tremendous dislocation, demographic transformation of the global Jewish community, and unprecedented persecution, both Jewish communities had a vested interest in focusing on bolstering their own situations rather than debating their ideological and practical differences. This is an Abraham Lot moment. Be careful about who's Abraham and who's Lot, right? But it's the Abraham Lot moment, which suggests that sometimes it's better to establish the peoplehood and the sense of family by actually pursuing different destinies under different conditions. So the American Jewish community replaced their bodily participation in the Israel story through a financial participation in that story. We sent money, we sent lobbying, we sent advocacy, but we didn't send ourselves. And Ben-Gurion took the deal. And so one theory, one model of peoplehood imagines we are here, you are there, you are primarily responsible for your own destiny, and I'm primarily responsible for my destiny. Can I get irritated when you do things over there that I don't like? Sure. But do I really have a stake in it? This is one model of Jewish peoplehood, and I'm, I don't want to get at the conclusions yet, but I would just want to hint to you that this one is on the rise. This one is on the rise, and it's predictably on the rise, 
Because as American Jews become fully conscious of having become Americans, of having made an implicit or an explicit choice not to throw their lot in with the state of Israel, and as Israelis are fully conscious of the, form, of the boundaries and limitations of their own identity and realize they're not the same as American Jews, we wind up with two Jewish communities pursuing essentially autonomous and independent destinies. Model number one. Model number two I want to look at next. Model number two takes the same premise that Jews shouldn't all live in one place, but makes a slight tweak. And I want to read with you in English one of my favorite run-on sentences of all time from, um, from the English translation of Philo of Alexandria, the book Flaccus. Philo is a great Alexandrian slash American Jew. <laughs> Living in the first century Alexandria, um, Philo is a leader of the Alexandrian community. He not only is a leader politically, but he's also a spiritual leader. He writes a 22-volume commentary on the Bible, likely without having the ability to read the Bible in the original. It's a moment of great intellectual chutzpah, almost unthinkable today, right? Would you read a commentary on the Bible if the author couldn't read in the original? Probably not. But in ancient Alexandria, his commentary um, is, um, is definitive. Philo says as follows in trying to unpack his own relationship between his loyalties to Alexandria versus his loyalties to the homeland, Jerusalem, and keep in mind Philo is a useful comparison to the present because in his time, the temple still stands. So there's some semblance of Jewish sovereignty that he has chosen not to live in. And Philo says as follows, for no one country can contain the whole Jewish nation by reason of its populousness. I don't know if he's being serious here, but would that we had such problems, right? Um, on which account they frequent all the most prosperous and fertile countries of Europe and Asia. Since Jews can't live in all in one place, they live all over the world, whether islands or continents, looking indeed upon the holy city as their metropolis, in which is erected the sacred temple of the Most High God, but accounting those regions which have been occupied by their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers and still more remote ancestors in which they have been born and brought up as their country. Let's unpack that run-on sentence. I have two places as a Jew, right? One of them is the metropolis. And here he means not metropolis in the Superman sense, he means metropolis meaning literally mother city. One of these places is my mother city. And which is the mother city? Jerusalem. That's the city on which is erected the temple of the Most High God. That's the place I pray to. That's the spiritual center, right? The, the place I send pilgrimage to. I have some deep spiritual relationship to that place. But this place is my country. That's what, and how, I, how do I symbolize or signal that this is my country? That's where my father and grandfather and more remote ancestors were born and raised. So it's interesting, there's a lot going on here in this text. There's a gender dynamic between a mother city and a fatherland, right? But both of them have a, fa a familial relationship. Philo sees himself as the product of these two parents, one there and one here. He is the first, I think, to so eloquently describe the distinction between home and homeland, right? The land of Israel is my homeland, but this is my home. And what he does, and this is why it constitutes its own model of peoplehood, I suspect many of you are gonna to relate to and resonate with this, is an attempt to hold on to the belief as a diaspora Jew that it can actually have two different places that I consider in some ways part of my home, two places where I feel at home, but I can actually live here and retain some sense of homeland there. How many of you, when you've ever, whenever you've traveled to Israel, have felt some sense of being at home when you get there, 
and then weirdly at home again when you get home. Right? You know that story. So Philo is telling a story here of ancient Alexandria that resonates deeply with a long history of the diasporic experience. His model of this, of this relationship is to say that there's some benefit I derive out of that place and some benefit I derive out of this place. And all of it is held together by the theory that these two identities are non-conflicting and non-competitive. As long as those identities don't wind up rupturing each other, I can hold on to both simultaneously. And I would guess that many of us resonate with the story as being a big piece of the story of the State of Israel in its first 66 years. I derive some benefit, and I have some responsibility to that place, and I derive some benefit, and I have some responsibility to this place. It was pointed out to me earlier today that that's perhaps best signified by this, right? The two flags, right, where by law, you can have a second flag of a different nation in an American institution next to the American flag, provided that you A, always display the American flag, and B, that you don't have the flag of another nation higher than that of the American flag, right? So that's why both are essentially the same height, right? And that's, that has been an effort of one theory of peoplehood. I hold on to something I gain out of this place, and I hold on to something I gain out of that place. It's also very well articulated, beautifully articulated, by um, Justice Brandeis writing before he got on the court. It's almost unimaginable that he would have written this as a Supreme Court judge. But Brandeis writes, um, in the early years of Zionism, an articulation of this that makes it consonant and resonant with the American Jewish experience. He says, let no American imagine that Zionism is inconsistent with patriotism. Multiple loyalties are objectionable only if they are inconsistent. A man is a better citizen of the United States for being also a loyal citizen of his state and of his city, for being loyal to his family, to his profession and trade, for being loyal to his college or his lodge. Every Irish American who contributed towards advancing home rule was a better man and a better American for the sacrifice he made. Every American Jew who aids in advancing the Jewish settlement in Palestine, though he feels that neither he nor his descendants will ever live there, is likewise be, will likewise be a better man and a better American for doing so. And he goes on later, loyalty to America demands rather that each American Jew become a Zionist. It's actually remarkable that he got on the court. Um, it's an amazing, amazing statement about the complexities of the American Jewish identity and the possibility that one theory of peoplehood is I derive some deep benefit out of this place, I derive some deep benefit and relationship out of that place, and more than that, in Brandeis's hands, the two actually mutually reinforce each other. I'm a better citizen of that place because I care about the legacy of the Jewish people in their homeland. That helps me understand who I'm supposed to be as a, as a Jew and as an American here. So Brandeis takes the Philo idea and articulates it in a profoundly American idiom. And this model of peoplehood, unlike Model 1, remember Model 1 said, you live there, I live here. We're family, but it's better that we not be that connected to each other. Model 2 says, no, the ideal American Jew actually feels a profound sense of loyalty to homeland, even if it doesn't change where they actually are at home. Model 3, stay with me. Model three, this is an involved and kind of fun rabbinic text. Ultimately, this is in some ways the easiest of the models, the most familiar, and in some ways the most traditional. But it's a fun rabbinic text, so we'll read it together. Rabbi Safra said, we're on page four here of the handout. 
Rabbi Abahu used to relate that when Hananiah, the son of Rabbi Joshua's brother, ignore all the family tree, when Rabbi X, let's call him Rabbi X, um, went down to the diaspora, he began to intercalate the years and fix new moons outside Palestine. So let's paint the picture. This rabbi, Hananiah, leaves the land of Israel and goes to the diaspora. He goes there to be a rabbinic leader. He shows up, he's like a, he's like a shaliach, right? He comes, from, he comes sent by the homeland to the diaspora to be in charge of all sorts of policy, but he begins doing something that the rabbis will consider to be problematic, which is to intercalate years, which means to fix new moons. Without going into all of the details of this, the problem that will become obvious and surfaced here is that on certain issues of public policy relating to the Jewish people, there is one center and everybody else is the periphery. And the minute that he goes to the diaspora and begins determining public policy there, he loses his stature and his ability to do so. This will create havoc. So the rabbis sent after him two scholars, Rabbi Yossi ben Kippar and the grandson of Rabbi Zechariah ben Kavuta. When he saw them, he said, why have you come? And they make a great diplomatic move of kissing up to him, and they replied, we came to learn Torah from you. He thereupon proclaimed, these men are the most eminent of their generation, because they're there to reinforce um, the certainty of his authority. It goes on a couple, gone a couple, skip two sentences. Soon they began to declare clean what he declared unclean and to permit what he forbade. Thereupon he proclaimed, these men are worthless, they're good for nothing. <laughs> what do they do? They do the worst thing imaginable to any rabbinic leader, which is they follow him around and undo his rulings. So he goes in and says a restaurant is kosher. They walk in afterwards and say, nope. And they essentially create havoc, not just in the rulings itself, but in destabilizing the legitimacy of his authority. And he, the problem has been, since they you know, buttered, up, buttered themselves up to him at the beginning, he propped them up as being authoritative voices from Jerusalem. And now he's stuck. So skip two sentences. Um, he said to them, why do you declare clean when I declare unclean? Why do you permit when I forbid? What are you doing to me, guys? You're, you're undermining the centrality of my authority here. They replied, because you intercalate years and fix new moons outside Palestine. In other words, we don't actually care about the things you're declaring clean and unclean. We're concerned about the overstepping of your authority. And the minute you overstep your authority, you're no longer a representative of the place that sent you here, and we're now gonna destabilize and undermine your ability to exercise your authority in all sorts of other ways. So he said to them, wait a second, didn't Rabbi Akiva, son of Joseph, also intercalate years and fix new moons outside Palestine? They replied, don't cite Rabbi Akiva, who left not his equal in the land of Israel. This is a kind of paraphrase of Lloyd Benson in the 1988 vice presidential debate, who says when, when right, everybody remember what I'm talking about? Dan Quayle quotes John F. Kennedy, and Benson says, I knew John F. Kennedy, you, sir, are no John F. Kennedy. Right, this is that moment of, you think you're Rabbi Akiva? <laughs> right, you, you're not Rabbi Akiva. So maybe Rabbi Akiva was a unique character who could leave the land of Israel and actually retain his authority in diaspora, but you're not that guy. You're just, your authority, and this is critical, stems from the fact that we sent you. And if you begin to transgress the boundaries of that authority, we're disowning your right to actually wield any authority in the diaspora. So they said to him, next line, they said to him, 
The kids you left behind have become goats with horns. You were a big shot when you were in the land of Israel, but you left and we grew up, right? And they have sent us to you saying, go tell him in our name, if he listens well and good. If not, he'll be excommunicated. Tell also our brethren in the diaspora, tell the people who are listening to him not to listen to him. If they listen to you, well and good. If not, let them go up to the mountain, let them build an altar and play the harp, let them all become renegades and say they have no portion in the God of Israel. Do you want to follow this guy? You are leaving the story of the Jewish people. Straight away all the people broke into weeping and cried, heaven forbid we have a portion in the God of Israel. Presumably this rabbi gets deposed, demoted, executed, God knows what else, he leaves the story. And then the narrator comes along and says, why all of this to do? Because it says, for out of Zion shall come forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There is one center and one periphery. What's the center? Jerusalem. You can live in diaspora if you want to, but especially when it comes to issues of public policy that pertain to the Jewish people, there's one center and one periphery. And your job in the diaspora is to essentially pay an allegiance to that center periphery model. Like it, don't like it, it's there. It's an authentic narrative of peoplehood that imagines when we go to the question of what do American Jews owe Israel, text three or model number three here suggests that what they owe Israel is a loyalty and obedience to be able to establish public policy on certain matters relating to the Jewish people. Now we have other texts which would say they should do so carefully. They should do so in ways that acknowledge that if you want people to follow you, you better set up a public policy that's actually obeyable. But model three, unlike model one and unlike model two, doesn't imagine that there's these two parallel places. It imagines if we want to use an astronomical metaphor, that there's a gravitational center and that everyone else is in orbit of its gravitational center. And what do you have to do, therefore, to maintain your gravitational orbit? Okay, model one. You live there, you live there. Model two, dual identities held by individuals. Model three, a center and a periphery. Let's look at model four on page five. This is Rabbi Joseph Telushkin summarizing a piece by Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, summarizing the Talmud. Got that? Telushkin says as follows. One of the more unusual texts in Jewish religious literature concerns the case of an infant born with two heads. Rabbis have great imaginations. But what's the best part about the rabbis here is not only that they imagine the scenario, but they come up with an arcane legal question to ask of this scenario, which is, the Talmudic commentary to Menachot 37a raises the question of whether such a child is entitled to one or two shares of his father's inheritance. Right, where you'd think the question, would, you'd think the question right now would be, the kid has two heads, right? That's the issue, right? But the, the question that the rabbis are using is trying to probe legally the ramifications of this unique case, right? So is this child essentially one person or two people? And notes that a similar case had been raised before Solomon, long renowned, renowned as Israel's wisest king who had ruled, let them pour boiling water on the head of one child and see if the other child screams. If he does, I know people are not, not a popular uh, approach here. If he does, it means that the children are not regarded as twins, but as one. However, if the second child does not feel the suffering of the first, then they are to be regarded as separate individuals. One hopes that this case was hypothetical, certainly for the sake of the child destined to have boiling water pulled at Barnett's head. Nonetheless, the, Rabbi Joseph, the late Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik of blessed memory argued that the implications of this case are not hypothetical at all. 
In his essay, Coldo di Dofeg, My Beloved's Voice Calls Out to Me, he writes, if boiling water is poured on the head of a Moroccan Jew, the prim and proper Jew in Paris and London must scream. And by feeling pain, he is loyal to the nation. Model 4 takes us in a little bit of a different direction. Model 4 says to us, I don't care where you live. I don't care if you live in America. I don't care if you live in Israel. I don't care if you live in Morocco. I don't care where you live. Peoplehood is not about loyalty that's expressed from a Jew in one place to another place. Loyalty to the Jewish people is being part of a physical body. And if one Jew is suffering in one place, the way you express sympathy or empathy is not through an act, but through a feeling. Now, in, one, in some respects, for many people, this is a very appealing theory of peoplehood. They say, yes, I feel pain for other Jews when they're in pain. The problem, however, with Model 4 is how profoundly difficult it is to educate towards. Because what he's saying is not, you have to act as though you feel pain in that moment. What he's saying is you have to feel pain in that moment. And if you don't, I'm sorry, Model 4 is very hard to access. Nevertheless, I think Model 4 tells a very accurate story for how many Jews, especially in the post-Shoah generation, understand intuitively and intrinsically a sense of Jewish peoplehood. This isn't about some political negotiation between a Jew here and a Jew there. This is, we as Jews are essentially arms of the same person, branches of the same tree. And if, if someone is suffering there, I automatically and intrinsically feel the pain. And yet, one of the things I challenge back when people say that is, are your grandchildren having the same understanding? And the answer is almost always no. And so part of the issue of Model 4 is, it expresses a certain theory of peoplehood that says, again, it's not about you live there, I live here. We don't actually care where we live. Peoplehood is about a relationship to a physical body, and we express that relationship through feeling pain in these moments. Let's do Model 5, I'll offer some closing comments, and then we can discuss. Model 5 comes from Numbers 32. This is an interesting and strange moment near the end of the narrative of the Bible and its entry to the land of Israel. It's strange because the people of Israel have been traveling through the desert for 40 years on the promise of getting into the land of Israel. Keep in mind that the actual time it would take to walk from the Red Sea to the land of Israel is approximately six days, and it's taken them 40 years. And at the precipice, Right, right when they're about to enter into the land of Israel, something absurd happens, which is expressed in Numbers 32, which is that two and a half of the tribes, the, Reuben, the, Gad, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half of the tribe of Manasseh come along to Moses and say, you know what, it's been a lot of fun, but we're gonna actually stay here on the other side of the Jordan, and we would rather live here than cross over into the land of Israel. Remember, in order to go to the land of Israel, they had to conquer a whole variety of tribes and nations in order to get there. So they've conquered some land on the other side of the Jordan that's not part of the promised land, and they'd actually like to stay in that part of the, of the non-promised land, precisely because they actually have a lot of um, cattle. And remember, Lot had also chosen to be on the other side of the Jordan because it's a good place to raise sheep. And they say, instead of crossing over and having to live in an area where you don't get a lot of rain, we'd rather stay here. This is problematic for a few reasons. One of the reasons it's problematic is it signals an abandonment of the collective project. We're all supposed to go together, like it's been a terrible bus ride, but we're almost there. Stay with me for you know, two more weeks and we're gonna be in the land of Israel. 
But it's also a problem because it signifies a abandonment of the very theological framework that's supposed to govern the land of Israel. The second paragraph of the Shema says, God puts you in the land of Israel where there's no rain. And that the reason why God puts you in the land of Israel where there's no rain is to make you pray. If you pray and you behave well, you'll get rain. If not, not. And these guys are basically saying, I don't really want to sign up for that. I'd rather stay in the place where there actually is rain. So predictably, when they bring this promise to Moses, Moses goes ballistic. So we'll read this in this first couple of lines. The sons of Reuben, I'm on page six, and the sons of Gad had a great multitude of cattle, and when they saw the land of Chatzer and Gilad, that behold, the place was a place for cattle, the sons of God and the sons of Reuben came and spoke to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and the priest is saying, they said, uh, verse four, the country which the Lord struck before the congregation of Israel is a land for cattle. And by the way, your servants, us, we got cattle. Therefore said they, if we have found grace in your sight, let this land be given over to your servants for a possession and bring us not over the Jordan. You know what? We'd like to stay here. Moses uh, lays into them, and you see it in verse 6, shall your brothers go to war and you stay here? How can you abandon the people right in this moment when they're about to fight on behalf of the rest of the people? It's an act of disloyalty. Wait, we've waited 2,000 years to get a state of Israel, and you want to stay in Los Angeles? Right? It seems absurd. By what right do you get to not participate in the acquisition and attainment of sovereignty in this moment? And why do you discourage the heart of the people from going over to the land which the Lord is giving them? And then Moses gives them in about five verses, narrates a whole six, seven lines of all of the things that the Israelites have done terribly, and this is the ultimate betrayal. We were waiting for this moment, and you've decided to abandon it. And then an amazing thing happens in verse 16. The people listen patiently. It's actually an exercise in... Um, in constructive dialogue that takes place between these two parties. They listened patiently, verse 16, and they came near to him and said, we will build sheepfolds here for our cattle and cities for our little ones. But we are, so, so first they say, no, you didn't hear us. We weren't asking, <laughs> we're staying. But what we've heard from you, Moses, is that you are upset because you think that our decision to stay here is about an abandonment to the people. So once we've understood that, we're willing to make a transactional trade with you of paying you the loyalty we need to pay to the people in exchange for the right to stay over the Jordan River. In other words, we weren't asking you for permission to go. We were telling you, but we were able to hear from you that that signaled a betrayal. Now we want to compensate for that betrayal. So what will we do instead? We will... Um, we ourselves will go armed before the people of Israel until we have brought them to their place, and our little ones will stay here. Verse 18, we will not return to our houses until the people of Israel have inherited every man his inheritance, for we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond because our inheritance has fallen to us on this east side of the Jordan. Three conditions. Number one, we're going to stay here and build sheepfolds. Number two, we will fight at the vanguard of the people of Israel to conquer the land of Israel, and none of us will return home until the land is conquered. If the issue was peoplehood, we're willing to fight not just alongside of you, but in front of you. We are fighting for the land of Israel in order for, to earn the right not to have to live there. <laughs> it's very explicit. We don't want to live there. 
but we see the obligation of fighting for it as an expression of Jewish peoplehood. And then finally, and this is critical, we will also forfeit our right to the land. Because remember, they, these two tribes were allocated a piece of the land themselves. But they're not being greedy. Let somebody else have it. We don't want it. We just want this place that's here. And then again, as an exercise of constructive listening, Moses hears them, repeats it back to them, and then they basically say, Moses, what a great idea you've come up with. And that's what ultimately comes to result. So it's also a good lesson in managing up, right? Um, the, amazing, the amazing statement of Model 5 here is, you can choose to live in diaspora, but you only can earn the right to live in diaspora through an act of loyalty that you pay to the Jewish people to earn the right to sovereignty. If you choose to not participate in the acquisition of sovereignty, you almost don't earn the right not to live there. It's a kind of a weird take on it, right? It's that the Jewish people don't need you to live in a particular place. They need acts of loyalty to acquire and maintain that particular place. So model one, you live there, I live here, and let's pursue separate destinies. Let's retain a family kinship relationship, which is frankly helped by the fact that we don't live in the same place. Right? All of us can think of family members for whom this is the case. Right? That's model one. Model two is the challenge of maintaining dual identities. I maintain a loyalty to this place and it brings me a sense of home, and I maintain a loyalty to that place and it gives me a sense of homeland. And as long as the two are not in conflict, I wind up deriving great benefit out of both. Model three, ki mitzion Torah. Torah comes out of Jerusalem, that is the center, and everything else orbits as a periphery. You can live in diaspora, but don't get all uppity about diaspora. Don't think that diaspora is an act of actually, a, an, it's, not, it's not equivalent, it's just a choice to opt out of the center. Model four is, I don't care where you live, I just want you to feel a sense of kinship and relationship to the Jewish people elsewhere as exemplified through experiencing pain. Model five is, you can live in diaspora only by virtue of the debt you pay to the peoplehood in order for those who live there. And I want to try a little exercise. I'm going to call out a number and I want you to raise your hand. I asked you at the beginning, um, I know, I know. Um, I asked you at the beginning, to try to think about which of these models speaks most closely to you. I know that for many of us, you probably answer is, well, what about model six, which you haven't mentioned? Or I'm somewhere between two and four. Or I have a little bit of one, a little bit of three, and a little bit of five. I, I get it, and I'm not gonna, I will give you permission to have that afterwards. But the first thing I want you to do is I want you to respond personally and viscerally to which of these models, when you read them, spoke most closely to who you were. I'm gonna ask you to raise your hands, and I'm gonna ask people to look around. So model one. And then the question is always, can you repeat the models? Model one, Lot and Abraham, you live there, I pursue my destiny here. Uh, model two. Model two is Philo and Brandeis, the dual identities. Model three. Jerusalem is the center, and diaspora is the periphery. An unpopular view in Los Angeles, but we got some, yes? Model four, feeling the pain of the Jewish people everywhere. A lot of model fours. And model five, you pay a loyalty to the state of Israel or to the Jewish people in this moment in exchange for the right to live elsewhere. Great. So actually, interestingly, when you look around the room, there's a pretty even divide. I would say, Maybe, I'm not sure if I, I didn't count fully, but there are probably fewer Model 1s 
and fewer Model 3s than 2, 4, and 5, right? If I said to you, now I give you permission to have more than one of these, raise your hand if you had more than one. Okay, right? So everybody wants to have a little bit of the others, right? But I do this exercise um, for two reasons. First of all, I understand and I get and I relate to um, what it means to have a messy and a complex identity with respect to questions of Jewish identity and peoplehood. Nevertheless, the ability to signal, right, the ability to signal in a moment like this, the appeal of a particular category helps to sort out what has ultimately become an emotional and complex conversation of the Jewish people. Part of the reason for the existence of such a messy and complex conversation is not, as it's oftentimes assumed, that certain people understand peoplehood and others don't get it. Certain people are loyal to the Jewish people and other people are disloyal to the Jewish people. But part of what's happened is that we're the inheritors of a complex tradition with at least five different authentic models of Jewish peoplehood. And that when, when you see the kind of anger that emerges when somebody who's a Model 4 gets angry at someone who's a Model 1, right, it's very natural that that becomes a hierarchical critique of your failure to understand that which I already feel, which is I under, if I feel pain about Jewish suffering elsewhere, it feels to me that someone else's inability to feel pain signals a kind of failure or abandonment of peoplehood. What if we shifted our consciousness just slightly to understand the possibility that the whole idea of peoplehood, the whole notion of this incredibly complex, rich people who are not ethnically the same, not politically the same, don't live in the same places, believe radically different things, think that they shouldn't be able to pray next to each other, the whole notion of peoplehood requires the kind of pluralism that's embedded in this exercise, which is not just the, the, the kind of namby-pamby pluralism of you do what you do and I do what I do, but the pluralism of acknowledging the legitimacy of these multiple voices about peoplehood itself, itself that are born without the, with, within the context of this tradition. We actually, I would suggest even further, we actually need all five. Anyone who's serious about peoplehood needs all five. Because even if you're a Model 4, it's hard to educate towards a Model 4, right? And even if you're a Model 5, if you're, you know, a, you know I think Friends of the IDF is a Model 5, right? I'm not gonna serve in the army, but I will support the Israeli army to be able to fight its wars out of a basic sense that if I'm not doing that for the Jewish people, what right do I have to not fight its wars? But none of these actually can live in isolation. All of them require each other in order to build a complex peoplehood. My hope and my challenge for us today is that we think forward about this question of what do Jews owe each other in America and Israel that we take seriously the possibility of having a very particular narrative that surfaces from our tradition. That what is oftentimes pitched as an emotional and visceral conversation is actually a, a combination of, um, it's actually a personalized version of an authentic story that we've inherited. Take it seriously. You wanna be a number three, own it, right? Understand the legitimacy of how this tradition allows you to do that. Understand that even as we live at a relatively unprecedented moment in Jewish history, our tradition has prepared us for this possibility with all of these models and other scenarios. But the second thing that we must do urgently is to find spaces like this one and elsewhere to understand that peoplehood cannot be a zero-sum game. 
that our relationship of Israel to diaspora requires a people that takes seriously all of these indifferent points of entry and points of access. That as difficult as it is for a Model 5 and a Model 4 to truly be in dialogue with one another, that we are all together the inheritors of a complex tradition on this issue. And that the best way that the Jewish people has always been able to walk into relatively unprecedented circumstances is to look back at our tradition for the methodological and conceptual tools that will enable us to get there. Thank you. So we have, um, we have, I think, a wandering mic to answer some questions. I'd like you, when you ask your question, to say your name and your number. Um, Is this working? Okay. Yeah, in the back. Uh, hi, I'm Ellen, and I'm a, a rare number one. Um, I, thank you. It was very illuminating. I just wanted to suggest a, an elaboration of number one thinking about, uh, you talked about the two different destinies of the American Jews and the Israeli Jews, uh, and thinking about Jacob Blaustein, um, the, the destiny that he worked for was not merely prosperity in the United States. The destiny he, he worked for, he was one of the, um, one might call him one of the authors of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and certainly yeah. one of the um, the great uh, voices behind the human rights uh, task of the United Nations. Um, so I would like to say that um, uh, the destiny of Jews in the United States in particular and outside of Israel uh, more generally is to preach a, a universal doctrine of human rights. Um, and I wonder if you would uh, yeah. accept that into your... Uh, yeah, so it, it, it's a very good um, extension of number one would be to say, what's the very particular Jewish destiny, that we, the aspirational Jewish destiny that should be pursued by Jews living under sovereignty and should be pursued by Jews living in diaspora? And one argument might be, um, you know, I've argued elsewhere that I think the way that that should divide is um, the, the Israel is a laboratory or an experiment for Jewish values as they get played out in a public square. And diaspora is a laboratory for Jewish values as they get played out in private institutions. And those two projects have a tremendous amount to learn from one another. But another version of it would say, Israel is a laboratory for particularism, and this is a kind of extension of what you said, and diaspora is a um, platform for universalism. This is an argument that was made recently in a, in a new book by Alan Wolf um, called, I think, At Home in Exile. Um, he's a professor of political science who at the end of his career has basically turned his, his attention from the evangelicals back to his own community. And he makes a rather political argument in the book about restoring, you know, let Israel be what it is. He's a very much a model one guy. Let Israel be what it is and let's reclaim um, universalism and human rights and that moral, those moral categories as the destiny of diaspora Jews. I get the argument. I feel a little bit sad by it. And the reason I feel sad by it is because I think the dance between the particular and universal is actually critical for both communities. And I would hate to wind up creating that kind of distance between the two by saying you'll be particular and you'll be universal because both of them suffer as a result. Right? What Jews have tried to do from our prophets to the present is to articulate a universal vision for the world through a particular narrative of a people. 
And I think that should be the project both under sovereignty as well as under diaspora. So I, I, I'm, I hear the impulse to read number one as a way in which diaspora Jews can articulate a story that we are uniquely positioned to be able to do, but I would hate for it to lose the quality of how these stories can actually inform and support one another. Um. Uh, Fred Goldberger, number five. These are wonderful intellectual exercises but practically speaking, Israel needs the United States both politically and financially. And the United States Jews support Israel. But where do we stop and how much can we criticize? Because any criticism is seized by the enemies of Israel and goes against them. How does one actually apply all of these things so that Israel can function and yet the American Jews can have some voice in what's going on? You caught my Achilles heel, which is the application question. Um, um, okay, so first of all, uh, first of all, I wanna critique the question, um, which is to say, um, one of the things that I struggle with and that I think is at the core of what we try to do in this institution with teaching on Israel, and I think in a very short time, and many of you have seen this through the iEngage program in your congregations, very short time we've moved to the forefront of teaching Israel in the organized Jewish community, and we feel the, the heaviness of that responsibility. One of the critiques I offer oftentimes of Israel education is that, um, and here I channel uh, something I learned from a colleague of mine who's an expert public speaker. Uh, her name is Ray Ringel. Um, she says that uh, a great public speech um, hits on the ABCs, the affective, the behavioral, and the cognitive. The affective is, how did I make you feel about the presentation? The behavioral is, what did it incline you to do afterwards? And the cognitive is, what have you understood as a result of this presentation? So you want to give a great public speech, make sure you hit the ABCs. I've found um, in the world of Israel education more broadly that our community is very good at affective, right? Falafel night, birthright Israel, right? What do I give you about Israel to make you like it, right? We're very good at affective. We are incredibly good and incredibly obsessed with behavioral, which is I'm going to teach you something about Israel because I want you to do something very concrete and specific. Right? It's give money, lobby, lobby your congressman, advocate, do X, Y, and Z. And I'm going to actually control the information that I give you to make sure that it aligns with the vision of what I actually want you to carry out in practice. We as a community are notoriously bad at the cognitive, which is what do we have to understand about Israel and as equally about ourselves to help us stand up as Jews and as human beings in this moment. So first I would say in defense of my academic presentation, um, it's definitely situated in the cognitive. This is a reflective exercise, a self-reflective exercise to say, how do we understand our very own nature with respect to these questions? What inclines us in this particular moment and how do we then animate and motivate um, towards being better at, what we, at better at our own ideologies? You can't be as, as good as your own ideology as you want to until you understand it. So what I would say, and I, I hope this, I mean, I know it's a cop out, Part of me says, understand and take seriously your fiveness, 
right? That's your narrative. You've actually, and you've expressed it, you believe that you have a moral and political obligation in this moment to play out a very particular type of support for Israel because in your own narrative, you've conditioned your own status as a diaspora Jew in relationship to that particular type of support for Israel. It will be hard for you to get up in the morning if you don't do that. It'll be hard for you to relate to and understand Israel that way because you will feel that you're not doing your duty to it. But maybe part of what actually ha that has to be held in tension with is the possibility that somebody else has a perfectly legitimate narrative of peoplehood that doesn't allow that, right? What, let's say take Model 2. A Model 2 Jew has a very different approach to criticism of Israel than a Model 5 Jew. Model 5 Jew thinks that criticism of Israel is always undermining because my job is to be on the front lines at the vanguard and not actually looking over my, rear, looking over my shoulder. A Model 2 Jew, like Philo or like Brandeis, requires that these two identities actually be consonant with one another, needs them to be consonant with one another. If they're in conflict with one another, how do I hold on to the two simultaneously? And so if Israel is not living up to its democratic character and quality, what do I need to do, whether in private or in public, to try to get it back to where it's supposed to be? Now it's born out of the same instinct of feeling a deep sense of relationship between one and the other, but it translates into a different set of actions. What I would challenge you in return is, I can't answer your question. We may actually come out at different models and that may also create some tension between us. But part of what I'm trying to advance for is the possibility of a charitable reading of other approaches of what it means to be in relationship to Israel as deriving as authentically from a sense of peoplehood as the one that you originate from. That will make the possibility of what the nature of criticism looks like in the community be a collaborative conversation rather than a combative conversation. Um, I have a question here in the front, oh, right here. It's coming. Model four, you speak about feeling the pain of our fellow Jews, but you dropped the ball and didn't suggest that we do anything about feeling the pain. Did I miss something? Did I drop the ball? Um, I think what I tried to say, and I hope I, um, I hope I did it justice, is what this text argues for is that a theory of peoplehood that says that Jews are essentially people of the same body. And so if one Jew is feeling a pain in one place, another Jew has to intrinsically feel that pain. What I tried to suggest is that I think it's very hard to educate towards that, although one of my colleagues, uh, Rabbi Kligfeld from Beth Am, disagrees. He believes that, this is, that actually feeling the pain is educatable. I think it's an interesting question. Um, and what I also suggest is, and I think that the more that Jews actually live apart from one another, it's harder and harder to actually feel that pain intrinsically, right? Jews, and this is, again, when we go back to the conditions that have bred the circumstances that I said at the outset, American Jews and Israeli Jews are becoming politically different, they're becoming philosophically different, and they have for 60 years become ethnically different. We're pursuing totally different destinies. Right? The openness of the American experience means that the ethnic makeup of the Jewish community in America is not the same as the ethnic makeup of the Jewish people in Israel. The influx of aliyot from different parts of the world has also changed the ethnic makeup of who the Jewish people in Israel are. So the hypothesis that you're going to say to a 15-year-old or a 25-year-old that Jewishness is about being able to feel the pain of a Jew halfway around the world who doesn't look like you, act like you, talk like you, um, think you're a Jew, right? Or, um, 
and you can't eat in each other's houses is an incredibly hard thing to educate for. What I'm saying is I think we have to acknowledge that Soloveitchik's idea here is an important one and goes to the heart of how a lot of Jews understand Jewish peoplehood. But it doesn't mean it's an easy one to actually translate for generations to come. And here, I, I would challenge all Model 4 Jews, right? This is what we're just supposed to do is feel the pain, is to ask yourself seriously, right? Do you feel a sense of greater loyalty to a, I don't know, ultra-Orthodox Jew living in Brooklyn or in Harnof than you do to your neighbor who's next door to you, who happens to not be Jewish? And maybe the answer is yes. Maybe you still feel that sense of kinship and loyalty that means that you're still holding on to this notion of feeling the pain. But I'd suggest that this as an idea is almost the hardest to sustain in the present climate and a very hard one to educate for. So I'm not advancing um, abandoning it. I think there's, it has to be held onto as a serious piece of the argument of Jewish peoplehood, but I am suggesting that it's a very difficult one to sustain. Okay, Jill. You spoke at the beginning about um, how people's grandparents, I mean, how people's grandchildren might um, usually do respond differently to issues of Israel. And so I'm wondering if you have given a similar talk using these five models to um, young people and what their response has been and how would it be possible to use this way of thinking of comparing narratives in terms of creating a vision for the future? Yeah. I have done this a lot with, um, we run a, a fellowship program for Hillel directors that we're now in our third cohort of doing it and we've had about, we've educated around 40 to 45 uh, Hillel professionals working in the field. I've taught this to them and for them it's been an exercise that they've done on campus and now I've taught it on college campuses in, around the country too. Not surprisingly, um, I wind up seeing with college students a lot more of one and two um, and with, uh, with older adults a lot more of four and five. Three among American Jews is generally unpopular, um, but it, it surfaces. Um, what I also have found is that there's models six and seven that are not on here, which are the idea that actually America is central and Israel is peripheral. It's like the flipping of number three, which is not that popular yet, but I would suspect in 20 or 30 years it will be, right? Especially when American Jews perceive Israel on a collision course with its own identity, you will see a resurgence of an idea of American Jews that believe, apropos the question in the back, it's possible to achieve something here in America that's not achievable under sovereignty. The question of what do you do then with this information? Um, well, the fir first thing for me is I see Jewish peoplehood as this exercise. Right? It can't be, since it can't be held entirely by one, two, three, four, and five, the act of Jewish peoplehood is, is in this conversation. <laughs> it's the kind of willingness to say, I'm part of a people that has a complex relationship to place, to other, and to community, but feels a sense of commitment to that conversation that we together have actually had a very intense political conversation for the past hour and 15 minutes with huge implications and nobody's killed each other. And we've also learned about the possibility of dissenting views that wind up being dissenting expressions of the same idea. That to me feels like this, it's like this, it has the, it has the, the, the promise of a revolution in it, right? Because peoplehood can't be and we know this. Peoplehood can't be the alighting of difference. 
People who can't be, I have 16 congregations, how do I make them identical? Right? Nor can it be, I have this incredibly politically disparate and diverse American Jewish community, how do I eliminate political difference between them? But it could be creating a language or a framework in which we're actually capable of seeing each other as participating in the same project. So to me, that feels like a, a dayenu, right? It might be sufficient to do just that. And then, you know, if, if, if peoplehood is, a, is an a, a conversation that people feel is intellectually and affectively one that they want to participate in, then you will discover after the fact that you've been promoting peoplehood, right? Um, any other questions? Um, My name is Larry Gilbert. Um, I would like you to talk really about the future because Darwin has taught us when you have two separate environments, the creatures in those environments change dramatically. And Israel today, the way it sits with its particularism and the United States with its universal values are definitely in two different poles. So how would you would advise us as the Jewish community in terms from an educational perspective, how do we reach our youth so that our youth would have the same pain as we had in our generation and the generations before about the Jews in the, in the diaspora and in the other diasporas? Well, I hope that we don't have to educate our children to have the same pain, right? That feels to me like... Um, um, I'm not attributing this to you, but there is sometimes I see a kind of longing for the best instrument to promote peoplehood is anti-Semitism, right? So I sometimes see a kind of longing for the good old days when at least you knew the difference between a Jew and a non-Jew because you're always reminded by them. Um, I, I hope that that's not what we wind up needing, right? And I'm sure that's not what you're hinting as well. What you're looking for is some sense of that kinship relationship that our natural environments in which we're breeding Judaism here and Judaism here are not creating. There have been efforts over the years to try to create peoplehood by simply putting people together. I think those have had mixed value, right? Those were called mifgash in the 1990s of the best way to breed a sense of peoplehood between young Jews here and there is to give them context to breed, right? Actually put young Jews together in between these two places and they will see that they are kin. I think that that probably has a limited value in terms of its working, but we're certainly trying with some of our programs and there are other folks doing it as well of saying just put Israeli and American Jews together and they will ultimately see that they are participants in the shared project. For me, I think it's much more of um, a much more of an intellectual exercise. Are we promoting a conversation of meaning Amer of, um, among American Jews and a conversation of meaning among Israeli Jews that use the same variables, the same data, the same set of questions, even if they wind up um, producing very different behavioral outcomes? I think we have to be prepared for the likelihood that this gap between American Jews and Israeli Jews becomes much more pronounced, more than it becomes narrowed. Simply because, as I said, the gifts of the American experience and the Israeli experience have allowed these communities to pursue independent destinies. So I think that means maybe you retain contractual relationships. Apropos the question earlier, American Jews still have a role in terms of money, advocacy, and lobbying as a responsibility towards the state of Israel. And Israeli Jews are also serving a role vis-a-vis -vis American Jews, right? And the condition of American Jews in America changed significantly after the Six-Day War when American Jews stood up differently because of the state of Israel. So we are locked 
in, in some larger sense in a kind of political relationship between the two. What I would like to see is I want us to be working with the same data. I would like to see this conversation take place as well among Israeli Jews. And that the end goal is not that you necessarily feel that you are kin because of some intrinsic sensibility that's hard to create, but because at least you believe that you're participants in the same framework. I'll take, uh, I'll take two more comments, one here and then there. Last night on television, uh, Benjamin Nahinahu, uh, I'm discussing uh, whether there should be a Jewish state. Will you put that into the equation we're discussing? Yeah. Um, so the question, I think, pertains to the, the, new, um, the new and much pilloried nation-state bill of the State of Israel. Um, look, my view on this is, um, is similar to that of uh, David Ellenson and Deborah Lipstadt and others, which is to say as follows. Nobody, um, most of the people involved in this conversation, whether on the pro-nation-state bill or on the anti-nation-state bill, the particular version of this bill, actually believes that the subject for debate right now is whether Israel should be a Jewish state. Right? Even to many of the critics of the nation-state bill, there's a broad belief that Israel's aspiration, as articulated by its Declaration of Independence, is to be the nation-state of the Jewish people. And, and this is what I would argue as a nuance on that, that it, Jewish people should be able to pursue its national aspirations and identity within a democratic framework. Right? Which is to say, you always are going to wind up, when you use these terms Jewish and democratic, having to come down on one side of the question or another. Is the state as Jewish as democratic allows, or as democratic as Jewish allows? Right? And for most people on the liberal democratic side of this debate, there's a strong belief of the state of Israel can only be as Jewish as democratic principles allow that the foundation principle is that it be a liberal democracy, and Jewishness becomes the texture of the national identity that's being played out in that democratic framework. Right? We could talk about what that looks like. It includes language, it includes the right of return, it includes um, national holidays, it includes all sorts of other aspects. But it can't allow Jewishness to become something that actually contradicts or fights against democratic values. The problem with the nation-state bill is, two, there two, is twofold. One is it begins to blur that line. And it asserts, somewhat chauvinistically, that Jewishness comes at the cost of other national identities in ways that are not necessary. And the second problem is timing, right? Which is that it comes when there are already conflicts in the region. Now, we know, I mean, there's always conflicts in the region. Uh, more explicitly, there are more tensions today between the Jewish um, Israeli population and the Arab-Palestinian Israeli population than there have ever been. And when those tensions are beginning to create a legislative impulse to name more explicitly the distinction of different citizens within a democracy, it causes a tremendous amount of fear. It responds to fear by promoting fear. So here in this context, I don't think there's any reason why someone can't be opposed to the bill but still believe in Israel's legitimacy as a Jewish and democratic state. It's just that the character, the national character of the Jewish people has to be established through acts of figuring out what the texture and quality of that state should be rather than through this particular form of legislation. Um, here, over here. Can you suggest a term, another term for diaspora? That term has the implications of spreading out from, 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 some, from some central uh, uh, area. Uh, if there is another term, it could very well enhance the ability of the 
other communities, particularly American communities, to create their own identity. So the question goes to the terminology of diaspora, and is the terminology of diaspora in itself problematic because it signals that you start in one place and you spread to others? I personally am actually a big fan of diaspora. Um, I have this debate with my colleagues. Some of my colleagues don't use the term diaspora anymore because they think that it's offensive to American Jews. I feel I can get away with it because I'm an American Jew. Um, and they'll use a term like world Jewry, right? Because then it's giving space for world Jewry to be its own thing, although that too has its own Israeli quality to it, where if you're in Israel, there are two places in the world. There's Israel and what's called Chutzlaretz, which is everywhere else in the world. So it has its own, you're, there's no way in essence to divide the world into two without still promoting some sense that that strip of land the size of New Jersey and the rest of the world are essentially equivalent. Um, I like the term diaspora because it was born in diaspora because it's a Greek word invented by diaspora Jews that believes in the notion of scattering seeds. That's what it's about, as opposed to being exile. Exile imagines that you are supposed to be in one place and you're pushed out. Diaspora has the kind of agricultural quality of making possible an existence outside of the incubated environment from which it originates. And by virtue of the fact that it's actually a diasporic word, that's the word by which diaspora Jews wanted to see themselves, by which they imagined the pursuit of and the creation of a destiny outside of what was once the homeland, I think it's actually a, a term that I'm comfortable with. Exile, I'm with you, right? I don't want to see a rebirth or a rehabilitation of that term. Um, but diaspora is actually something that I'd be comfortable with, but if you have other suggestions, uh, I'm open to them as well. Um, thank you, everybody. This has been really interesting. <laughs>